Please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 61. We are again this morning going to be looking at verses 1 through 3 of Isaiah 61. And then we're going to skip back to the New Testament to Colossians chapter 1 and read verses 9 through 14. Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 3. This is God's word. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress. Instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now turn with me over to Colossians chapter 1. And this is in Colossians 1 is a place where Paul actually prays that that vision for God's people be implemented through the Spirit of Christ. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. One thing that I have noticed as I have studied and in the short term, experienced the history of the church, is that it seems that every generation of believers is in some way reacting against the errors and excesses of the previous generation. And what you end up having is errors in the church in one generation and then an overreaction a lot of times from the next generation trying to correct those errors. I've often talked about the pendulum swings that we see in the history of the church, both in theology, where you have a wrong teaching in the church, and in an attempt to correct it in the next generation, they go too far in in an opposite direction, or in practice, maybe some aspect of piety or worship, where in an effort to correct the error or the, the false teaching, they go too far the other direction. It always reminds me of what it's like to drive on icy roads. If you start to swerve in one direction, it's a mistake to turn the other way radically to try to correct the swerve. You end up overcompensating and spinning out and getting into a worse accident. Just to give you one example of this process of one generation reacting against another generation that I've seen in my own day, 
Back in the 1980s, it became very popular in evangelical Bible-believing churches to get very deeply involved in the political process, to try to bring about social change through political movements and working through the political parties. And it obviously resulted in some very bad outcomes for the church. And so, as I've noticed, the next generation, as it has come along, the younger adults in the church, now they don't seem to want to have anything to do with the political process. That there's almost a separation from the political process. That to get involved in the political process at all is almost unchristian. And again, what I'm seeing is a mistake in one generation being overreacted to in the next generation. The one I want to talk about this morning, the example of that that I'd like to talk about this morning, is this pendulum swing that the church seems to always be going through from one generation to the next between legalism and antinomianism. Antinomianism, the word antinomian means against the law. And so what you have is people that become legalistic and keep the law for wrong reasons and do so in a judgmental way and a self-centered way and and, and a superficial way, a hypocritical way, that happens in one generation. The holiness or piety of the church becomes very superficial and it's motivated by sinful hearts. And so in the next generation, what you have is this getting rid of the law almost, where people don't you know, we're under grace, so we don't need to keep the law. And so the behavior of the church becomes very worldly and sinful. And I think that's what's going on right now. In my parents' generation, and, and even more recently, you think of the 1950s maybe as an example of what uh, uh, legalism was in the church, a superficial Christianity, an outward observance without real heart observance of the law. Now it seems that the current generation seems to be swinging back towards what I just called antinomianism, that we don't want to keep the law, we don't care about the law, we preach grace, so it doesn't matter how we live. And it almost seems like looking and talking and acting like the world has become a badge of honor in the church. And so I'm praying that we don't overreact. I'm praying that we don't switch back to legalism, but instead we dig a little deeper into the scriptures to find out what real holiness looks like. Because it is our primary calling. It's central to who we are as individual Christians and central to the calling of the church to be holy. We've been looking at Isaiah 61 as kind of a basic text to find out what God's vision is for his church because we're trying to get direction as leadership for the for this church, for this body of believers. And we've seen here, here's a picture of God's vision for his delivered and restored people. And what we're seeing here in Isaiah 61 is a spiritually healthy, strong, vibrant, and growing body of Believers, people who are God's people. And as we've seen, these are Messiah's words. The Messiah who's pointed to through the entire book of Isaiah, these are his words. And later, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus Christ claims them as his own words because he is the Messiah 
sent by God, the anointed one, the Savior. And we've looked at this metaphor of a tree, the oaks of righteousness. It's this metaphor of a tree as it's carried out from the beginning of Scripture all the way to end over and over and over again is a picture of this spiritual growth and health and vibrancy in the church. Last week we looked at how that spiritual health, that spiritual vibrancy comes from being deeply rooted in the Word. Just like a healthy tree is deeply rooted in well-watered soil, so the church of Jesus Christ is only going to be vital and strong insofar as it is deeply rooted in the Word of God. But this morning I'd like to go back to that phrase, that key phrase, oaks of righteousness. That's the end product, is that all this spiritual health and vitality is to bring about righteousness. That righteousness is going to be central to our identity as the work of grace is carried out in our lives. And so what does that transformation look like? Jesus said, by their fruit you shall know them. By their fruit you shall know them. Every healthy tree produces good fruit. So if you are deeply rooted in the Word of God, and the Spirit is using that to create spiritual health and vitality, you're going to see that in the form of fruit. Salvation by grace produces fruitful disciples. I was so gratified a few years ago to hear about one of the very big, well-known megachurches in our country, out in the Midwest, a very well-known church, Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people attending this church every week. They had become kind of a model for what church growth looked like from the 1980s through the 1990s and the early 2000s. And they did, to their credit, they did a self-study. And they looked at this incredible growth that they had experienced over a couple of decades. And they decided that their growth was far too superficial. That when they really looked at for the kind of growth that Isaiah is talking about here in terms of spiritual vibrancy and real discipleship, it was greatly lacking. And their conclusion, and they went public with this, they put it all over the internet, their conclusion was, we've done a good job in growing in numbers and growing in ministry programs, but we've done a lousy job of growing disciples. That the people sitting in the pews were largely passive and inactive, spiritually speaking, and not growing spiritually like they should. And I really uh, commend them for not only doing the self-study, but then trying to correct that. And so then I think we need to ask ourselves, how do we keep from making that mistake? How do we measure spiritual growth in the correct way? And what Isaiah is saying to us is look for the fruit of real spiritual growth and health and vitality And what I see in this passage, and I see it elsewhere in Scripture, when you think about the fruit that spiritual vitality produces, I think it generally falls into three categories. Obedience, service, and worship. Those are the fruit of genuine spiritual growth. Obedience, service, and worship. Let's look at obedience first of all. 
True spiritual growth produces the fruit of obedience. We're talking about spiritual maturity here, aren't we? When you're talking about vitality and growth and longevity, stability, security, you're really talking about spiritual maturity. And just ask yourself, when you think of spiritually mature people, what kind of things do you look for? What kind of things do we do to measure spiritual maturity? A lot of times we tend to think of spiritual activities. How faithfully do you read your Bible? How often do you pray? How often do you attend church? What kind of outreach in the community are you doing? What kind of leadership position do you have in the church? We'll look at those things to determine maturity. But that's not exactly how the Bible defines spiritual maturity. As a matter of fact, Jesus told us that on Judgment Day, there are going to be a number of people who come to stand before him as the judge of all mankind. And they're going to lay out resumes before him of lots of spiritual activity. To put it in his words, they'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons and, and do mighty works in your name? Lots of religious activity. But Jesus is going to look at many of those people and he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. I think back to when I was spiritually searching as a teenager. I actually, believe it or not, was doing daily devotions. I picked up one of those little devotional books in my church, and I was reading the Bible and doing daily devotions for about two or three years before I ever even understood the gospel. It's entirely possible to be doing the things of discipleship, but not genuinely be spiritually alive and growing and vital. Well, let me take you over to Ephesians 4 for a minute, because I think Paul... In Ephesians 4, and we've looked at this passage many times, we think about what does it mean to build a healthy ministry. But Paul lays out the process in Ephesians 4. And it ends up talking about obedience. Let me just show you how that process goes. Look at verse uh, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. And he, Christ... Gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Notice how, again, it begins in the ministry of the word. Apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers, they are given to the church to equip the church for spiritual growth. It begins in the ministry of the word. It's always centered in the ministry of the word, just as we saw last week. The tree must be rooted deeply in God's word. And Paul's making that point here again. But then notice, as he describes what the goal looks like, beginning in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Right there, he has laid out the goal, the purpose. What all that equipping and training and ministry of the Word is meant to produce is mature manhood, spiritual maturity. And what does it look like? It looks like the Son of God. It looks like Jesus Christ. The stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what mature spiritual manhood looks like. And so that's why we must keep our focus on Christ every day. 
Because that's the work that the Spirit of the Word is doing in us, is to make us look like Jesus Christ. Because that is the definition of righteousness. My wife paints oil paintings, and she'll do portraits. And I've watched her begin the process and go through the process of creating an oil portrait. And what she'll do is she'll get a good photograph of her subject, and then she'll study that photograph. And she'll, she'll look at that photograph every day for hours, for days on end, and she'll actually go to the point of taking precise measurements from the facial features to make sure that she gets every proportion right when she does the oil portrait. And to me, that's kind of a picture of what the work of sanctification is all about, is that Christ is the picture of righteousness. And we need to gaze upon the face of Christ. We need to study Christ, and we study Christ by studying his word. That's how we see Christ. That's how we know Christ. And that in that process, then we become conformed to the image of Christ. And so what we're talking about here is obedience. Jesus Christ is the oak of righteousness after which everything in our lives is to be patterned. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, verses 20, verse 29, he says, For those whom the Father foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. We get so caught up in whether we like the teaching of predestination or not. We get so caught up in the argument about predestination, we forget the purpose of predestination. The Father's purpose in predestining us is that we be conformed to the image of his Son, that we walk as he walked. Because that's what obedience looks like. And that's why Paul says, going on back in Ephesians chapter 4, let me skip down to the end after he talks about what maturity in Christ looks like, where we're not you know, swayed by every tossed to and fro by waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine. You know, we are well-rooted, we are strong spiritually, and we are becoming like Christ. And so, therefore, he lays out the challenge for us, the exhortation. Begins in verse 17, we're going to pick up there in verse 22, where he says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You really should have that verse in front of you every day. That that's what you're called to be and to do, is to put off the old self And to put on the new self. And who is the new self? It's the image of God. Which is righteousness. Which is Christ. And so daily your life must be made up of repenting of the old ways. And walking in obedience. It's a calling upon your life. That you need to take seriously. That's what your life is about. But personal holiness must also have a public impact. And that's why I say not only the fruit of obedience or personal righteousness, but public righteousness or service to others, the fruit of service. The plan of God is not just to transform us into oaks of righteousness in the sense that we reflect the righteousness of God, but also that we become agents of his righteousness in the world around us. We are not to hoard the benefits of the gospel. We are to proclaim them and share them. 
Yes, Jesus is the one speaking. He's the Messiah who's speaking there in Isaiah 61. But that message that changed us is to be taken by us into the world. Part of being like Christ is that we take the good news to the poor and we bind up the brokenhearted and we proclaim liberty to the captives and we proclaim freedom to those who are bound and we comfort those who are mourn, who are mourning. That's part of what being obedient means. That's what being righteous means. It's not just reflecting God's righteousness, but bringing the righteousness of Christ to the world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. As we are comforted and as we stop mourning and begin rejoicing in the righteousness of God, then we are to take that comfort out to the world around us. Tim Keller says this about righteousness. He says, when modern people see the word righteousness in the Bible, they tend to think of it in terms of private morality, such such as sexual chastity or diligence in prayer and Bible study. But in the Bible, tzedekah, which is the Old Testament word of righteousness that we have here in Isaiah 61, the the Hebrew word for righteousness refers to -to day-to-day living in which a person conducts all relationships in family and society with fairness, generosity, and equity. And so a broader understanding of righteousness is not just getting my life right in the sight of God, But it's living in right relationships, relationships with God first and foremost, and with the world, everyone around me. Living in right relationship with God and man. Or as Jesus in the Old Testament law puts it, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's what righteousness looks like. It's very trendy these days in especially among the younger generations in the Church of Christ, to talk about social justice. It's very trendy in the popular culture, and so it's become very trendy in the church to talk about social justice. But we need to understand that social justice is an outflowing of righteousness, that it begins in a right relationship with God. It begins in personal holiness, Loving God and living in a way that pleases God and walking in a Christ-like manner that then has an impact on the world around us. Personal righteousness that becomes social righteousness or social justice. It begins with the gospel and too often, again, in these pendulum swings in the church, we go from being too concerned with personal piety to being only concerned about social justice and caring for the poor and the needy and the oppressed. Why can't we ever do both at the same time? Why can't we ever pursue holiness at the same time that we pursue social justice? What a powerful church we would be if by the grace of God we could actually emphasize both. The word of the gospel produces righteous people who work for justice. Which brings me to the third category of spiritual fruit that Isaiah refers to, and I think all of Scripture refers to, which is the fruit of praise. The fruit of obedience, the fruit of service, and the fruit of praise. And in many ways, this is the ultimate one. 
Verse 3 points to it. Look at verse 3 again. The ultimate goal of this spiritual transformation is found in verse 3. To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. What's the purpose of all existence? To glorify God. And that's the purpose of all the fruit in our lives. To bring glory to God. In Isaiah 43, verse 20, 21, God describes us, his people, as my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they may declare my praise. Why is he making us into oaks of righteousness? In order that we may declare his praise. And this is a fruit of the spiritual life that's in us by the word of God. That's what Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 means when it says, Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The fruit of our lips is the praise, the the thankfulness, the glorification of God that comes from our lips. We are born worshipers. We have a deep, internal, instinctual need to worship. And if we don't worship Christ, then we're going to find false gods to worship. Due to the generosity of friends, I have had the the joy and the privilege of attending the last two Penn State football games. There in person in Beaver Stadium, finally. All my life I've wanted to do that. Never, never been to a major college football game and certainly have never been to any sporting event with 100,000 people there cheering on my favorite team. But as I sat there yesterday, and again, I, I was scrambling yesterday to get my sermon preparation done in order to get over there to the game, and I'm having all this Isaiah 61 stuff in my head, and I'm sitting there in this glorious stadium, and I kept thinking to myself, what a great cathedral this is. And what a worshipful congregation. You know, as I sat there with that frame of reference, it was amazing how much ritual there is in a Penn State football game. How much tradition. How much liturgy, even. I could actually come home and make up a bulletin that would lead you through the liturgy of cheering at a Penn State football game. There's songs of praise that we all sing together. And even confessions of faith. We are Penn State. It's a confession of faith, isn't it? It's what we stand for. It's who we are. It's our identity. And it's all driven by that instinctual hunger for transcendence. To be a part of something that's far bigger than ourselves. To see something great, something inspiring, something exciting. It's a need to worship. And it's fine for somebody like you or me who knows what it is to worship the creator, the true creator of the scriptures. But so sad for people that that is their worship. The only God that they know. Their highest aspiration. You see, righteousness must end in worship or else it's not real righteousness. Righteousness must produce worship, otherwise 
It's self-glorification. It's legalism. And that's how you know the difference between legalism and real righteousness. Let me just, and I have to take a moment to point out here, that I'm not asking you to go home and try harder to be righteous. I hope you haven't picked that up, because that's not how we get to righteousness. We are saved by grace, and we become righteous by grace. We start the process of transformation. We start it by receiving the robes of Christ's righteousness. Remember that verse from the end of Isaiah 61? I'll take you there again. Verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That's a gift. You start the process by being given the gift of a not just clean record, but a perfect record of righteousness, which is given to you by faith when you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. And from that moment on, in the eyes of God, you are righteous. You're perfect, just as Christ is perfect. But he's not going to leave you in your day-to-day life in that state of sinfulness where where he found you. You have a clean record, but then he begins the process of making you like Christ. And it's his work of grace. His spirit is given to you as a gift. His law is given to you as a gift. And together they begin to produce within you real righteousness. As Paul says in Galatians, you know, in that passage we, we read about the fruit of the spirit. He listed the fruit of the spirit. But right before that, in chapter 3, he says to these Galatians who were trying to work harder to gain acceptance by God through circumcision and other means of keeping the law, he says to them in chapter 3, verse 3, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Surely not. Let me close by just directing your attention there, either in the bulletin or in your Bibles, to Colossians chapter 1. I included that passage because to me, in Colossians 1, Paul is praying for the church to experience what Isaiah has laid out as the vision of God for his people. And let me just read through it again, just pointing out what Paul is saying there. Colossians 1, verse 9. He's talking about how he, how Paul prays for the church. You should pray for this church this way. Understand? Take this home, stick it, you know, print it out, stick it in your Bible, and when you pray for the church, this is how you should pray. Look at how Paul prays. He says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, God's will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. How does that happen? How do you know the will of God for your daily, every moment of every day of your life? Starts with the Word of God, doesn't it? Just as we've been saying in Isaiah 61. It starts by being deeply rooted in the Word of God. It begins by being filled with the Holy Spirit so that you may understand and apply the Word of God. Verse 10. So as, for the purpose of, he's saying, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Why do we study the Word? Not to become Bible scholars. We study the word so that we can walk in a way worthy of God, which is what? To be Christ-like. To look like Christ, to walk in a way that is worthy of him. That's why we study the word. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. 
Righteous character produces righteous conduct. The fruits of obedience, service, and praise. And then he goes on to say, and you'll notice, actually, I just I don't want to skip over that last phrase, increasing in the knowledge of God. Do you notice how it starts in the knowledge of God's word, goes to righteousness, goes to service, and then ends up again in knowing God? Isn't that true? Isn't that like a cycle? The more you put God's word into practice in your life, the more you really know God. And so it's a, it's, it's a beautiful cycle of how you keep growing in your knowledge of God. But then you see how it happens. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. It's his work in us. As Paul says elsewhere, keep, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good purpose. And then in verse 12, that's where you get to the final product. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. The ultimate purpose is that the Father be thanked and praised. It all ends up in worship. We are to be oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The cure for legalism in the church isn't a lack of concern for God's law. That's even more deadly in many ways. The cure for legalism in the church isn't a lack of concern for God's law. It's gospel-driven, Christ-like holiness motivated by a love for God and for others that seeks to glorify Christ. It's worshipful righteousness. God-centered righteousness and service. That's what real righteousness looks like. The best strategy... Think about it. One of the social issues, I mean, there's so many of the social issues that Christians tend to cry out about. But the best strategy to combat sexual sins in our culture isn't stomping around in anger with accusatory signs. The best strategy is to joyfully trust in the Lord's word and only experience his gift within the boundaries of the marriage covenant. That's the way to fight the sexual sins in our culture. I'm not saying that we don't publicly say what's right and wrong. I'm just saying that it's not our best strategy to always be wagging a finger and condemning. The best strategy is to love the law of the Lord, to rejoice in his commandments, and to obey them joyfully and thankfully, trusting in the Spirit to continue that work within us. We will not draw other sinners to our church or change our community simply by being good. It will only happen if we love being good because we love Christ and want to glorify God. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, the grace that has brought us into your kingdom And the grace that day by day, as we trust in your word and the work of your spirit that transforms us, Father, make us more like Christ. Keep our focus upon the image of Christ we have in his word. Change us and use us to bring change to our community and the world around us. And thank you, Lord, that this is all by your grace. We trust in you to complete the process. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.